the Garden Hose Australia podcast, where we talk all things gardening. Your hosts, Jamie and Erin, will wander down the garden path with tea or gin in hand and discuss gardening loves, hates, new discoveries, interview some of our garden heroes, visit inspiring gardens and continue a discussion about plants that started over 30 years ago in primary school. Today we bring you an interview we did recently with Katrina from Blue Borage. Katrina um, is a font of amazing knowledge on all things compost um, and gardening in general. So we had a fascinating chat with her and got to ask lots of our questions about composting and worm farms. Um, And we actually ended up covering some fascinating ground um, in regard to um, sort of communing with nature generally and um, Jamie also recounts some of her stories and eco treaties and it's a bit it's a bit of a treat this one so we'll pop in the show notes some more information about how you can find out a little bit more about Katrina um, and her business Um, so we hope you enjoy this one well welcome Katrina to the garden hose so lovely to finally have you on the podcast and see you on screen thank you for the invitation we've been um following along on instagram so we know we feel like we know a little bit about you um so but i thought maybe first if you could perhaps introduce yourself a bit by letting us know where you garden and a little bit about blue borage um that would probably be a good start for us Okay, so um, I garden in a few different places. I'm living on a three-acre lifestyle block halfway between Auckland and Hamilton. It's in a tiny little community called Whangarata, which is halfway between two small towns called Pocono and Tuako. When I moved here, it was like, I'm in the middle of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) And how long have you been there? Uh, It's been a year and a half, uh, one year full-time. And it was a lovely synchronicity kind of landing here. Uh, During 2020, I had a customer who hired me to teach her how to compost. She had um, left her job just before the lockdowns, like really good timing. She was an accountant and the lockdowns hit at the end of tax year. (laughs) So she was at home with her then four-year-old son and getting into the garden and trying to grow food and and she just felt like, oh, I don't know if I'm on the right track and I want to learn how to make really good soil. Like there's this innate sense that we get as gardeners that the soil is key. Yeah. And where do you go for help? You walk into a garden mm. centre, you're going to get sold something in a plastic bag or in a bottle. Yeah. So she hired me for a month and I went and did a consultation, sent the email, went and did a hot compost pile and we kept in touch and she just got hooked like, Within, I want to say within three months, maybe Mm. six months, they were putting their house on the market to move out to the country to do the full self-sufficiency thing. Uh, 
they uh, leased a paddock, bought a tiny house. They were doing, and they, I got this photo of their uh, first batch of human you're composting. Like, thank you so much for teaching us how to compost. Oh. I didn't teach you that. <laughs> <laughs> like, you have taken what I taught you and gone way beyond. Oh. Um, and so they were shopping around for their dream piece of land. And I got a phone call late 2021. We were in a, in a big lockdown and and Marine said we've found the land we want um there's a second dwelling it's a little granny flat and your name is top of the list would you like to come and help mm. us develop the land and it was like how long would you take to think about a question like that <laughs> <laughs> you'd think you'd normally take it <laughs> well, yes 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 so we we met at a cafe and she drew out a map and I agreed without even seeing the house oh the wow but I kept my teaching garden in Auckland and I commuted week on, week off for about six months. And then they just reached a point where I was exhausted from the, the packing and mm. traveling and, and maintaining two kitchens. Yeah. <laughs> two <families>. and, <laughs> and so the choice had to be made. And it was just, yeah, there's more food out the, the kitchen door here. I'll come live in the country. But the other places I garden, there's a little community centre up across the road where I teach from, and it used to be the local school built in the 1920s and then closed in 1969. So it's kind of got this deserted feel, but still beautiful building. So um, the local community, and there's only like 70 houses that pay rates for this building. We're, we're trying to bring it back to life so that the council doesn't shut it down. Mm. Um, and then there's a retreat centre on the other side of Turco where I stayed seven years ago. I studied human design and I've done a lot of human design study through the years that, yeah, I'm developing their food forest. So I teach there on a Friday. And then um, just to get to know people in the community, I volunteer at the local museum on a Thursday morning. Um, mm. It's like, a, for me, it's the cultural heart of the town. You know, you can sort yeah. of see all the, the old newspapers and the black and white photos and, and get a sense of who's lived in the area. Um, so I'm 49 and I volunteer with a group of mostly 70-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just delightful sitting around the table having an old-fashioned yeah. pot of tea with biscuits and um and just putting roots into the area so behind the museum there's a stretch along the railway line where uh I've begged them to please stop spraying glyphosate and let me build a pollinator garden the town used to have a railway station and New Zealand sold off our railways in the 80s I think and uh, okay. The railway station got closed. So if I want to go either south or north, I have to drive half an hour to park my car and hop on a train. So there's this kind of rebellious teenager inside me that wants to make Turco so beautiful that people on the train will go, what was that? And we and need to stop there. We'll get our train station back. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a, there's a train station somewhere up in northern Queensland here. I think it's up near Port Douglas there's a um oh there's there's a train station I think it's when you get on the Karanda railway or something like that there that's incredible and it was totally unexpected like we had just gone there to pass through and I think it's someone who's worked there for many many years yeah. has completely filled the station with plants and because it's a tropical climate it's just gone 
bananas in a really short time. And it's like the building's clad in it, inside, outside, all over it. And now it is that kind of show-stopping sort yeah. of garden. So there's yeah. precedent for it. <laughs> there is. And actually, I'm thinking back, I spent a year in Russia. I lived in Siberia. And um, in Novosibirsk, each of the train stations had really distinctive decoration inside. Like there was... Um, the famous scientists there was one who was the guy who went up um into space Gagarin so there was there was a, a, a sort of um astronaut themed oh. railway station like underground as you come up yeah, yeah. okay Bit different from most of our railway stations here wow so you are a busy gardener <laughs> yeah <laughs> you must be gardening almost all your waking hours with that, <laughs> that amount of gardening well, I'm an empty nester. The kids left home two years ago, so they were with yeah. me through the 2020 lockdowns and then with their dad for the 2021 lockdowns. And it's, I don't know, when, when the kids leave, there's a lot of time to fill. And do you want to tell us a bit about um, your business and what you teach and what you help people sure. to do? Uh, so Blue Borage was born in 2018 and it was a sort of a, a, a long-term vision and almost like a, a dare slash challenge from my accountant <laughs> to teach online. She said, you know, there's lots of people that record videos and you can teach without having to be in someone's garden. And I was like, seriously? <laughs> um, and then 2020 kind of put the fast track on that, that it was like, oh, okay, time to really put energy into that. So when I started 2018, my sort of, vision and mission was to make biodynamic composting mainstream just let's get this into gardening because it's already in farming a little bit uh, there's a beautiful documentary one man one cow one planet that talks about um, a New Zealander Peter Proctor who went to India and taught farmers there and this is back in the 80s when farmers were committing suicide because they were so trapped by the chemical agriculture and I remember watching that in sort of early 2000s thinking gosh we're lucky we've learned the lesson we don't need to go through that <laughs> and our use of glyphosate has just kept on increasing like we didn't learn so yeah I wanted to mainstream biodynamics I wanted to bring composting into the food system so that like really push that everyone can eat well like good food for all, that we have this mentality here in New Zealand where organic food is expensive mm. and you can't afford organic unless you've got a really good job or you're gardening full-time. And, you know, I want to shake, shake that up a little bit. Um, but all the business coaches back in 2018 said, Katrina, no one wants to hear about composting. It's dirt. <laughs> How are you going to make composting sexy? You're not. Just find another angle. So I was teaching edible gardening, seed raising. I went for about six months. It was like, um, let's get plastic out of the garden. Like, mm -hmm. you don't need to buy your potting mix in a plastic bag. I can teach you how to make it. You don't need to buy your compost in a plastic bag. I can teach you how to make it. We don't need trucks to transport weeds to the other side of the city <laughs> to be mixed with everyone else's weeds that are being sprayed with you don't know what to be brought back into your garden in a single-use plastic bag like come on people let's um there's this phrase let's take 
collective responsibility for soil health of the planet. And, you know, starting with your own garden, with your own workplace, with your school, your children's school, your community groups. It's like if we open our eyes and look around, we each interact with dozens of little pieces of land where if, if we have a little understanding of gardening, we can actually have a conversation with the people who are responsible for what happens in that space. And I'm meeting a lot of property maintenance professionals that don't want to talk about composting. They oh, don't want really? to stop spraying. Yeah, my local district council has sent me this really persuasive email that glyphosate is the best thing on earth. It is oh, costly. Really? It is um, it's not harmful for humans. It's not harmful for the soil. And, and I'm just going, come on, people, we need to update. Science is showing us something else. Over time, I really like working on projects where we can set a vision and I can coach people who are already in that organization whether it's a home gardener or a school student or a sustainability professional in an organization to get something started that sets that space on a new tack and part of my um I said before I study human design but the part of the way I work is like short bursts and then Yep. I get distracted and I want to tackle a new project. So <laughs> I'm, I'm a Sagittarius. It's a fire sign, mutable fire. But you can't tie me down. You two have got me here for an hour or so. <laughs> We've well, done I mean, well then. We have. Well, that sounds like really valuable, having like a composting coach or you know, biodynamic coach even because I know even, you know, when you do start composting and you start, I know, as an adult, when I started in my own garden and doing that, you, know, you read some books on it and they give you a recipe and, you know, yeah. you follow this recipe and yeah. if you do these things, it'll be right. And then, of course, you know, there's so many variables and factors and all of these sorts of things. It's like, oh, it's gone, something's gone wrong. <laughs> what do I do now? Or how does it work? Or, you know, different I've got these ingredients today or I've got this is what I've got next week and how should I approach that and what should I do? And it, the book didn't tell me that. So I think that that would be, you know, a really, I can see how it would be a really valuable thing to have someone talk you through it and, you know, work through a, a sort of a process or a journey that works for your garden. I had one uh, customer who was bringing in all this cardboard because she'd been told she needed carbon. And cardboard mm. was a really good source of carbon. And I said, yeah, but it's it's dead carbon. You know, it's been through a, a, a factory. You're bringing all the influence and the glue and the dye and the tape. And, and, and I said, can we, can we go for a wander? Like, what, what's down in the bush section on the other side of your house? And there were all these um, hunger ferns with the fronds that had fallen. And she had living carbon. As much as she wanted, right there on the property. And she also had wild ginger, which is an invasive plant species here that, that most people think we can't compost. But if you if you cut the seeds off and you don't put the roots, the rhizomes in, then the stalk, it's amazing. Mm. But it's like, okay, here's your green and your brown. You actually don't need to bring anything else on site. Oh, yeah. perfect. <laughs> Jim would have probably been greatly relieved at that. Yeah, you know, when, when someone tells you that you've been um, putting unnecessary effort into something and you've been trying really, really hard, like the, yeah. the light bulb isn't always, a, it's not always immediately 
Oh, phew. We while to to adjust. Yeah. So I'm someone who's often bringing things in. Like on this morning, I did a quick dash out to pick up some seeds that I'd germinated. I was germinating chicken chicken food because my friend told me my chickens are fat. She's like, come down on their seed. I'm like, what about if I germinate the seed? She's like, that's fine. Then they can have some. Um, And stopped on the way home, grab a quick coffee before we get home for the podcast. And out the front of the shop, they've got coffee grounds in a cardboard box. And I really want to pick them up and bring them home, um, put them in the compost. Can I do that? Of course you can. Great. Of course you can. The only thing I would say is, can I get political? Of course. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So I've been studying the huaparakore, Indigenous Māori organic framework. And I'm not Māori, but I feel here in New Zealand that it's really important that as many of us as possible learn about Indigenous methods so that we can be effective allies and um, do right by the land, basically. So one, a few of the the concepts in this Huaparakore training have had me really question what I'm doing and what I'm bringing onto the land. And it's aligned with a biodynamic perspective where ideally we want to create a closed loop system so that if you need coffee specifically in your garden, Could you create that resource yourself so that it's part of your operation in a sense? Mm. So in Māori, there's a term whakapapa, which is kind of, we often talk about whakapapa in in terms of ancestry and lineage, but it's about connections. Uh, And so I I need to list the whakapapa of everything I bring into my space. And if I'm bringing coffee grounds from a local cafe, then it it would make sense for me to have a conversation with that cafe and say, hey, can I help you compost this on site? And can you grow some of the food that you're using in the cafe? And and I'm composting your coffee grounds. Would you come out and get some of the vegetables and herbs that I'm growing so that there's a, okay. a connection that's building some reciprocity where they become invested in what I'm doing with the coffee grounds and they can mm-hmm. take, some ownership in that full cycle of their waste oh, yeah. so there's the other concept from the huaparakore is um wairua which is the sense of peace and a sort of spiritual reverence the if our compost bins is a term that i'm going to steal from josh Whitten of make soil mm-hmm. where he refers to compost bins as I think it's regenerative portals or portals of regeneration. That like they're magic. Ooh, I love that description. <laughs> and the soil we're making is going on to grow food to nourish our not just our physical bodies, but our souls and our spirits and the land itself. That everything we put in, if we can, um, there's another phrase from Huaparakore, if we can elevate the mana of Hineahuone. To, to uplift the respect for the soil, the um, status of the soil, then the coffee grounds would almost be in a, in a beautiful receptacle, like a trying to think what would be the most kind of majestic carrying container that would get taken backwards and forwards. Just when you mentioned there when you were um, explaining that, the circular system, the truly circular system, because that's something I wanted to... Um, ask you about as well yeah. about you sort of for 
letting some of our, you know, non-gardeners who listen to our chats um, know what a truly circular system is in terms of, say, a, you know, a, a home garden, what, what you would call a circular system? Yeah, it, it depends on the size of the garden. So on a tiniest level, I'm thinking, say, a townhouse with a little courtyard where you've mm -hmm. really just got a few pots and a little worm farm. Then if all the food scraps can go out to your little courtyard and be in a worm farm and be making soil that's used in that space and any weeds that pop up stay in that system as well, nothing goes out and nothing comes in. And on a sort of a, a, a farm scale, you would want to have all the animals that you need for animal manure. You'd want to have bees. You'd want to have a little bit of forest. You'd want to have mushrooms and fruit trees and kind of tick all those boxes of a mixed farm. So in urban spaces, it might be that on a, on a street or among sort of a group of 50 households, you know a beekeeper and someone who does herbs and someone with chickens and that you share resources so that that closed loop is a, is a little bit bigger than just a courtyard yeah okay no, yeah it sounds like utopian doesn't it the idea of a, you know suburban streets where you've got this collective yeah and if you look at the the way things are tracking with like the cost of petrol and the mm. pressure to be carbon neutral and and all that jargon we're heading back to that old way of living and it's I think it's kind of a, a a matter of whether we do that by choice or whether we wait till we have no choice. You know, we can choose to keep our resources local and not yeah. rely on all that stuff to be trucked in and out. Yeah, I thought yeah. that was an interesting part of uh, these lockdowns that we had over COVID that all the nurseries completely sold out of seedlings and things like that, which it's an interesting um, sort of reaction that people had to it. It's like, well, one, I've got time. And two, there was this fear about uh, scarcity. Yes. And I think a lot of people then learnt or relearnt those sort of things that perhaps they had seen their parents doing, but, you know, had never thought that, you know, well, I'm going to continue that. So, yeah, I was interested, I'd be interested to see over these couple of years whether we see people continuing that and how that goes. I've spoken with quite a few people about this and um, if you look at there's a you can look up Google Trends and see how many people how many searches have been done on particular oh, yeah. terms and if you look up I think it's gardening then um, yeah that early 2020 there's this massive spike like globally gardening just took off I don't know that people were adequately supportive mm. to garden successfully that I've spoken to people who invested heavily and are black and white sure that they failed and they will never try again. It makes me really sad that it's almost yeah. like now looking for those people that didn't do that in lockdown and are still fresh and, and ready to go into it with an open mind. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it is a mindset about gardening. There isn't a black and white success or failure because if I did that, I'd say, well, I fail every week. Uh, you know if I looked at it that way in my garden because something gets gets eaten and it's you're like oh okay what bug moved in this time I haven't seen them before <laughs> um, but yeah I think that's and that's just one of the my joys of gardening I think my 
family, the joy that we get in it is that like, you're never done with it and that you can, you're just constantly, it's this constant cycle of starting, ending, starting, ending. There's sort of like a rolling sort of process. So the way we approach it here, and I think it's a, it's a better mindset, it's a more useful mindset, I think, when you approach gardening and everything around it. For sure. To get back under composting, can we? We talked about what a circular system looks like. On with composting in particular, can we talk about so the difference between hot composting and cold composting, and why you would perhaps be choosing one or the other, or well, you know, what maybe you only use one type more of the time? It's such a big topic. I don't want to make simplistic generalizations yeah. that give people the idea that oh I have to do this or oh I have to do yeah. that or oh I've been doing this wrong and the beautiful thing about composting is you know when you're learning to cook and you flop and mm-hmm. and you can't eat it like it's it's wasted <laughs> composting is so forgiving like if you if you're not happy with how it turns out you just kind of flip it all relayer it and off you go again nothing is ever ever wasted um so hot composting cold composting here in New Zealand a lot of the people I'm meeting who are just getting curious about composting have the ugly black plastic open bottomed compost do you have those in Australia yes yeah yeah So I often um, refer to them as rat cafes Um, and you can compost really effectively in those. People shouldn't feel limited that their compost bin isn't big enough or it's not sexy enough or, you know, it's not trendy enough. The way I use my black, ugly plastic compost bin is under the base of it, I've got this fine mesh it's sold at Bunnings here. It's a rat proof. It's actually called snake and mouse mesh. Oh, and, that sounds And if you idea. get something underneath that the rats can't chew through, chicken wire is not good enough. They can even kind of push their way through like bricks and tiles and wood. Mm. Rats are really clever. So, yeah, I've got a rat rodent proofed on the bottom. And then I'm just adding food scraps every other day from the kitchen. Yeah. And then once a week or so, I'll dig up a bucket of weeds, toss them in. But the key to making that system work really well is getting a compost aerator, which looks like a great big corkscrew, and you wind it down, pull a plug up, shake it out, and that gets air into the bottom. And it it means that, A, you don't have to touch it. Like a lot of people don't want to touch their compost, even with garden gloves. And it also means you don't have to use big, garden forks and, and and tools that make it really awkward and heavy and messy so those black compost bins can actually get quite hot you know if you want to get a compost thermometer and measure the temperature you could say I'm hot composting <laughs> I'm quite keen on the idea of getting one of those just for like competitive purposes yes <laughs> I bet you could probably get something that hooks up to an app on your phone that you know you can kind of oh yes it could check compost. I can imagine you two having compost competitions oh, well yeah. I think um I think then what would happen is I think Erin's husband would be right into that 
Yeah, he's a tech guy. <laughs> so, and he loves a gadget. He loves, he he's worked out apps that can tell us what's happening in different parts of our little farm here. And he's there all over that. I'll have it, to get him onto this. This will be a birthday present this year. And I reckon there'd be a market for it. Why not? Oh, yeah. Create something to like popularize composting that you can kind of share your stats with friends and oh yeah god I think you're onto something (laughs) birthed a new business with um I know the compost heaps that I grew up with I remember that my dad did he built that's a standard used we were always told that you should get it should be one cubic meter is what your size of your compost should be, you know, a metre by a metre by a metre. And so he built these timber frames. They're probably out of pallets and used to, you know, turn them over there and he'd have three bays going. So that's kind of been my blueprint for all compost going forward to say, all right, so this one's the one that we've sort of, we're putting everything at the moment. This one's at the next stage. And this is the one where we think it's ready to go. Do you, you know, do you think is that still a reasonable system to work with totally the only thing I would say with that type of system is the ones that I see if you're adding food scraps then they're probably not rodent proofed Mm. yeah yeah not at all yeah so if you if you want to rodent proof something of that size then there's a product I recommend it's it's a New Zealand company I don't know if they're available in Australia but it's called carbon cycle composting and they're beautiful, great big boxes with cedar stained wooden slats. Um, and the corners have this really clever metal construction. That I mean, you assemble it like a Lego kit. You don't need to be big and strong and hefty. And the, the slats just slide in so you can turn them around easily. And they're rodent proofed and stunning. So that's what a lot of school gardens and community gardens are getting here in New Zealand. Um, what I tend to recommend is that food scraps go into worm farms and then those big cubic meter compost piles are your green waste, branches, sticks, twigs, animal manure. I mean, there's piles of green waste, especially if you have a flower farm, right? Oh, yeah, I have so much green waste. Uh, I also I was... have little pigs who eat so much of our scraps which but we get their poo so that's good yeah the other thing I would say about that um method of the the sort of three big cubic meter base is that for me personally I don't like turning that much that frequently Mm -hmm. the way I would build hot compost of that size would be to make it so well mixed and blended and packed around the edges that once it's cooked you kind of peel off the skin and it's ready to use and this is where the biodynamic compost preparations just six herbal remedies five of them are powders that you add and, and five separate little balls and then a liquid they refine the comp like it's magic it's it's hard to believe until you see it and feel it oh can you tell us about those those biodynamic additions yeah so they're numbered 502 through to 507 Uh, so 502 is a herbal remedy made with yarrow flowers and i don't want to go too deep in how it's made people can go research that and go holy moly, this looks like a Hogwarts textbook because <laughs> it's pretty weird. But oh, if you... Lots of yarrow. Yeah. 
Yeah, so if you can find people in the area who are making the biodynamic compost preparations, let them know you're growing the yarrow. You'll probably be their instant best friend. Oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) And then 503 is chamomile. And if you think about how we use chamomile tea, like Mm -hmm. I I often think about that Peter Rabbit story where, you know, he had a sore tummy and his mother gave him chamomile tea and sent him to bed, that (laughs) it helps with digestion and composting is a digestive process. Yarrow, chamomile, stinging nettle, another really well-known, useful, herbal remedy. Yeah, I put that in my compost. Yeah, I just have so much of it here, but yeah. I did meet someone who puts it in smoothies. I've been a bit too scared to do that. I dare you. She picks the leaves off. I've, I've drunk it in tea and I've added it to soups, but I, I haven't put it in a smoothie either. Mm, I know. We need to get brave. I bought some um, in tea form for a friend, I think, last year. Um, This friend had circulation issues and my mum used to say, oh, you need nettle tea. Um, Like for chillblains and things, oh, you need nettle tea. So I was saying this to my friend, but where she lived, they don't have shops that sell such things. I'm like, I'll find someone, I'll post it to you. Okay, so that goes in the compost as well, stinging nettle. And then dandelion is another one of the flowers that gets turned into a preparation. And then oak bark and finally valerian. But you you can get the ready-made compost preparations here in New Zealand from the Biodynamic Association. I'm pretty sure in Australia you can also order them through a sort of a central biodynamic yeah, association. Yeah, we do have the Biodynamic Association here. Yeah. So these all help, they sort of speed up the composting process? In my view, they speed it up in the sense that I don't need to turn that pile again and again and again. I just Mm. build it once, add the preparations, let it cook, let it settle, let it mature, and then it's ready to use. And it's fine and it's crumbly. And it's, Mm. um, I remember the first time I used these preparations and it was in one of those black plastic compost bins and had a couple of bins so I kind of rested that for a few months and when I came back and put the compost aerator down into the bottom and kind of pulled it up and went holy moly what a pain <laughs> like I'd never seen anything like it, it was like crumbly uh chocolate brownie like even the sticks had broken down there were no slimy bits just it yeah um Rudolf Steiner who taught biodynamics 100 years ago he describes the soil as becoming sensitive intelligent conscious like weird adjectives for mm. but it, it is alive though isn't it it's you know so it's full of life in there yeah and you mentioned about giving food scraps to um your worms yes um so yeah I was interested to know understand about that because I've um, my kids wanted to start a worm farm after they saw one on TV being made. And so we, um, we've got a few old bathtubs here that we've used to grow different vegetables and things in. So they've got one of those going. And, of course, probably forgot about it after a few weeks. So that's added to, <laughs> to my job now. And I've just been using the, um, like the worm wee on my garden. And I haven't really, I haven't gone into it to get castings out or anything like that, but I'm very cautious of what I add to it because worried that, oh, maybe if I add onion or I add citrus, I'm going to kill them all. And then what should I do with those? Because the, well, the pigs would eat them probably. They'd eat me if I stood still for long enough. You know, I don't know. They, there's a whole list of things I'm not supposed to give the pigs. So what do you do with those sorts of bits and pieces of food? Um, 
to be honest, I put absolutely everything into my worm farms. I put meat, bones, mm. dairy, bread, fish, citrus, onions, garlic, spicy food, oily food. Oh, that's good to know. Love it. This is radical. Yeah. I love it. You you told us you were radical. This is radical. <laughs> this is radical. Um, there's there's an Australian company, uh, Subpot. Probably seen their worm farm product. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So each of their worm farms, when you flip open the lid, they've got beautiful instructions on what to add. And so they don't have black and white yes or no. It's like this is easy, and then these things just be a little bit careful. So you oh, kind of okay. have to be a confident worm farmer that you can add that citrus and onion and know what to look for about, you know, what else the worms need to balance mm. that out. Okay. Yeah, yeah that makes but, sense. Yeah, I had a, a meeting with an American compost consultant um, back when I started my business and I said to him, hey, I need to advise schools on what to do with their food scraps. What What do you reckon? How, how can we rodent-proof this? And he said, Katrina, just worm farms. They're the easiest. And I said, yeah, but what about the meat? And he gave me this look, like raised eyebrow, like surely we're not having this conversation. <laughs> and he said, what happens to animals when they die? And yeah. we put them in a hole in the ground. Like what happens to that animal? The that's worms true. eat everything. Point. Yeah, that's a very good yeah. point. So you just need to make sure that your worm farm is big enough and bathtubs are a really good size. You need to rodent-proof them because if you get, those tasty meat scraps and then the mm. rats will find their way yes. yeah and when you say you're using the worm tea is that the liquid that's trickling out the bottom yeah yeah okay. so this is not really worm tea can I first oh, no tell me that? yeah yeah okay it's leachate so leachate is the liquid that trickles out the bottom Mm-hmm. of compost bins and worm farms and it will be determined by what's in the worm farm yeah so mm-hmm. I worry about the public like school worm farm systems where they're taking that liquid and selling it and mm. people are using it in the garden not knowing yeah what it is farm. so is proper worm tea where you've actually made it from the worm castings yeah yeah, okay. So you make like a worm casting tea bag and well you just get a handful of worm castings, try and make sure there's no worms, chuck it in a bucket, stir it. Ah. If you if you're really serious, you can put in a, a sort of a oxygenator, like a pump, like a you know, put into yeah. tanks. Tank. Yeah. Mm. And some people add molasses just to boost the um, activity mm. in that liquid. But for me, I just put a, a handful in, in a bucket of water, stir it for 10 minutes, biodynamic style, kind of getting yeah. the vortex going, <laughs> and then put that out over seedlings. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I really have to get out is I've had, I don't know how long I've had percolating now, um, is my comfrey tea. And oh, Jamie's smiling at me on screen here because it smells so, it has smelled so bad for so long. I've yeah. just left it in the corner of the garden. I really it's need disgusting. to use it. It you is, just but... about need to kind of plan a holiday and make that the last job, right? Yeah. See you in a week. <laughs> so, but it's really, I really should, I really, I mean, I've spent all, you know, all this time I grew so much comfrey and I've got it everywhere now because I grew so much of it. And I've got this whole wheelie bin full of this stuff. Right. I really need to use it. 
I was actually in the garden. I was gardening and I said to Tom, I don't know what it is. There's something out here. Smells really bad. I think it's something you've done out here. And it took us a while. <laughs> and he said, it's your bloody country tea there. But I did wonder whether I should get Then I started reading up on, you know, natural amendments and then got into the whole Korean natural farming and Jadam stuff and think, thinking, do I need an aerator now if I'm going to start making all these amendments? So people there was a lot of talk about air raiders and I thought oh god that's a whole other level I need to think about where is it though like how big yeah. is your power farm it's sort of spread out my annuals I only grow on like a few hundred square meters but then my perennials will be end up there'll be like an acre of perennials so it's a lot yeah it is a lot so that's why I also I want to make my own so that well I know what's in it but also it's going to be way more cost effective to make all of my own amendments yeah, I know a guy. Um, I know a guy locally who um, farms hydrangeas, and for years he had problems with powdery mildew on the leaves. And um, a few years ago, he started using a preparation that was, I think, uh, fish emulsion, molasses, rock dust something else, I think, and, and aerating it and putting it through the watering system um, so it got watered on overhead. And um, so basically I think he sort of inoculated the leaves with, you know, sort of this beneficial preparation and it stopped the powdery mildew and um, his plants looked amazing and they were more resilient to the extremes of, of weather conditions that we might experience through summer. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm. Isn't it? And a lot of the biodynamic wine growers I talk with are using herbal remedies Mm. to battle powdery mildew and diseases in the grapes because they want to be natural wine, right? And and if it doesn't work, they've got major problems that I think we can learn so much from the commercial organic growers and apply that in the home garden because I think a lot of um, home gardeners they go to the garden center with questions and they get handed a plastic bottle yeah I want to ask you about um, composting plants that might want to take over the compost Um, I saw on one of your Instagram posts recently about um, the Madeira vine where you do workshops and that you'd had a conversation with the vine and you'd come to an agreement and I really I really liked that because I have a chat with um, plants in my garden and sometimes while I'm out walking and it confuses my friends I was walking with a friend one day and I stopped to chat to a plant and ask it if I could take some cuttings so my friend's like I thought you were talking to me and I'm like no I'm, I'm talking to the plant but I made it look like I was talking to you so it was less weird and but that thing of having a discussion with your weed well we've got a wandering trad here um where I live and it's it's everywhere and I've done an amazing job of controlling it until it grows back again and it's it's always made my eye twitch when I put it in the green waste bin and I send it off site because I'm like but this is a resource but I don't know how to deal with this resource so this this has got water and food from where I live and I'm sending it away and because I, I don't necessarily have the skills or knowledge to deal with it and turn it back into soil. So I loved what you were saying about, you know, your aim with the Madeira vine is to turn every bit of it back into soil and, and not use herbicides and that you've come to an agreement with that plant. So I want to know, like I hadn't, I hadn't thought about talking to my wandering trad. I talked to the other plants, but I didn't think to talk to the weeds. So I'm, I'm looking for some tips here. Do I talk to the wandering trad and how do I turn it into soil? Please talk to the wandering trad and let me know what it says. 
I haven't, I haven't talked with that species yet, but oh, let's go back two years. Uh, I successfully got rid of oxalis in a customer's garden. Oh, yeah. Should we start there? Yes. Ah, (laughs) So this is a biodynamic method that I was always skeptical. Does it really work? Like seriously. And so this was a, a customer I called her place, Mrs. D's Bird Sanctuary. She employed someone to come and feed the birds twice a day. And I was there. Yep. Uh, I was there to um, deadhead the roses and keep the garden tidy and, and trim the hedges and immaculate property. And no chemicals were to be used. And like these birds, their their hors d'oeuvres were grapes cut in half laid on the pathway before they got the apple and kiwi fruit and um anyway so with more than my kids get yeah (laughs) (laughs) there were hundreds of birds that would come just to this suburban garden and and yeah I got to know specific birds like there was one that only had one eye and one that had distinctive markings and they were there every day uh so with the oxalis I picked a whole bunch of it put it into a plastic bottle filled it up with water and let it sit for like two weeks until it goes stinky and then that liquid went into a watering can diluted about one to ten and then watered that over the oxalis that had grown back by then and it took a couple of treatments and it was really smelly but I didn't have any oxalis in that garden for four or five months like well, none that would work with I my biggest weed pressure here comes from a rumex um it's a type of rue that um grows it's just rampant and it's um it's similar to oxalis in that it's got lots of tiny tiny you know little stems that go down and it forms quite a mat um and i'm forever just pulling it out and as soon as you pull it out within a few weeks it's back again it's worth trying Mm. and and i think the thing that's really helpful with this method is that as you're pulling it out you've got something productive to do with it (laughs) Yeah. Because you yeah. don't want to put it in your compost, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah so I just work making big heaps of it here. Well, you could do that too. Yeah. I've done it with convolvulus. I had to use a big rubbish bin for that. Mm-hmm. And it turned into the sludge and the liquid was really smelly. But again, it worked. So after the oxalis success, it was like, I want to have a go with Tratascantia because the only trader scanty I'd worked with, I'd had chickens and chickens eat it and it's fine, not a problem. And the place where I was living, we didn't have any. And I actually put a post up on Facebook, who's got trader scanty? I want to I try turning it to soil. Didn't get any response, but ended up moving house after a couple of months. And where I moved to was what became a teaching garden I named Raspberry Lane. And there was a bank of trader scantia and it was like, yeah. So I think you must be the first person on the planet who was happy to see it. It was hilarious. And so I was kind of bundling it up. And my first feeling with this, this carpet was that it had protected the land underneath. Mm. It was almost like that kind of secret garden experience of, yeah. yes, you may uncover what we've held back from everyone who wasn't willing to explore and so because I was like really like how are we going to do this and I had just had this gut feeling like I wanted to have two big blue barrels and I was going to put animal manure into one and the other one was just the Tradescantia and I wanted chicken manure but we I didn't have access to any chickens so I think I used sheep poo from the farm here 
because I just moved out here. So one barrel had Tradescandia with sheep poo once a week and the other one was just Tradescandia. And I kept adding bag loads and bag loads and bag loads. Like it was phenomenal, the volume. And it condensed down by half and it just kept condensing down. And every six weeks or so, I would tip both barrels out and compare the two batches. So the one with no animal manure, it went a little bit slimy, anaerobic, didn't smell so good, didn't make as much soil. Like the animal manure helped transform it. There were worms in there. It smelled really good. It felt really good. And then I think I had to move house. So these two barrels came with me to the farm. They had shrunk down to like a tenth of the original volume that I ended up writing an article for the Harvests magazine for the Biodynamic Association here and then just forgot about it because I I think I tipped it out in front of a compost pile and not one section has grown back like they went so uh it's not shriveled because there was still moisture but they had condensed right right down that yeah I'm amazed right so so I'm going to give this a go. So you you were sort of emptying them every six weeks or do you just keep going? I just kept adding stuff onto yeah. the top. When I was feeling curious, I would get the compost aerator, the corkscrew, and wind mm-hmm. it down and pull a chunk up to compare the bottom of the barrel of the two batches. But, yeah, otherwise it's just time. Um, and I think if you were in a hurry, you could put them into something like, I don't know, a pillowcase and run water through and use the liquid as mm-hmm. a... We tea. I when I moved in here, I had a feeling like this is this is a five year project, and that this isn't going to be gone anytime soon. And I don't yet have the skills or knowledge to deal with this. But this isn't going anywhere in a hurry. And my chickens won't eat it, but they will scratch it up. They're That's quite fussy, fussy chickens. But where they've got access to the trad's not growing because they keep scratching. And it's interesting because it's it's coming from the local council land. I live next door to a local council easement and there's a lot of weeds there and I just want to be able to, I'm trying to do borrowed landscape because no one else is ever going to use it. It's this great spot. It's probably my best gardening area. And I also noticed last week my next door neighbour cleared a whole lot of wandering trout and they've just rolled it into this massive pile. I'm like, but that's a resource and it's just sitting there and it's going to regrow in the pile that it's currently in. So I really wanted to know, can I turn it into soil? And I think I've got the answer now. Thank you. Um, And if blue barrels aren't big enough or if you can't get them, then I wonder about a great big tarpaulin of some sort and just Mm. remove its connection to Mm. the earth. Mm -hmm. I did notice when I was pulling it up, uh, I like to overthink things and notice things and then be in conflict with it about, I noticed there were these little trails under there and I'm like, oh, there's things living here and whether they're native rodents or they've come from my compost, um, something is living here and they've got these fabulous little tunnels and the trad is protecting them and I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm in conflict now about, I want this space for gardening, but this is someone else's home and um, I often tangle myself up with my gardening thinking along those lines and and also what is a weed, you know, and when I'm teaching my students, I'm like, look, all right, so we have to come up with a definition of a weed, but just because I say it's a weed doesn't mean it's a weed. Mm -hmm. It's just we haven't found a use for it. So, you Mm -hmm. know, I talk to them about biodynamics and that, well, this weed might be useful for this 
And, you know, what's the point of having a lawn that's a monoculture? That's great if you're a golf course. But, you know, I feel I, I feel I have horticultural guilt about classifying things as unwanted. I'm really wrestling with my gardening space about there's some plants I want to take out, but I feel really bad for going, hey, I don't want you here, okay? And so, <laughs> you know, like I'm thinking back on your your Madeira vine experience. Yeah. If I, can I chat to them all, do you reckon, and just go, hey, thank you. I really thank you for being here. So yeah. Like <laughs> my my nature communication teacher, uh, Saskia Van Deest, EcoFluency, I, I highly recommend her courses. She does consultations if you want to kind of just test it out before you deep dive. She talks about setting up, I think it, she calls it an eco-treaty that you can talk with these rodents tunneling and say, hey, I want to I use a little bit of this land. I want to grow this. And, and you can have that hatch over there and can we come to a compromise? I did this with, now I don't think you have jumping jack ants in New Zealand. Do you have those? I don't, no, I don't think so, no. Um, black ant, I have to, oh, hang on, I have to get my fingers out to work out how big they are. They're probably um, one and a half centimetres long. They've got orange pincers and they, gosh, they hurt when they mm. sting. And where I used to live, uh, we had them and I did an eco-treaty with them and it worked really well for 17 years. And we moved about three years ago and they were at the new place as well. And I went and had checked to them and introduced myself and said, hey, I used to have this, this treaty back here. Could I interest you in such a treaty? And they told their mates. And so I went from having one nest on the property to they just spring up everywhere now. And I'm pretty sure they went, hey, we're a live one here. She's not going to kill us. She said she'd do us a treaty. Come on in. And I now, I reckon I've got seven or eight of these nests at, at our place. And, again, not sure what to do. My husband's like, we'll kill them. And I'm like, we can't. It brings my integrity into question. Have you come across the biodynamic peppering method? Please talk about that. Um, I'd almost rather not. I don't want people to to take what I say and and just apply it without careful thought. (laughs) In terms of managing pests, uh, peppering is a way of using the the body of a small number of the animals to create an ash that sends a message to a large number of animals to relocate Mm. without having to kill large numbers. I don't know if I can because I... Uh, I feel like I'd be reneging on the deal. Yeah. Mm. That's a tricky one. It is a tricky one. Who are their predators? (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) Probably only people. Uh, People and possibly echidnas, but I don't know. I might have to get some echidnas in. But I I think one of the things that's taught me is be a bit more specific about your communication. (laughs) You know, it's all great to be free loving and all, but maybe maybe there's parameters even with (laughs) you. Your eco treaties. Yes. Um, I did did have an interesting discussion with some trees at the start of the year. This isn't necessarily gardening, but um, there's this fabulous walk near where I live and I went out at 6.30 in the morning before everyone gets here. It's a very busy tourist spot, but they just want to exercise there. It's called the Thousand Steps and people just want to get their steps in. I like to go early in the morning when I go because there's lyrebirds there and it's this fabulous little piece of forest. Went one morning and there was a lyrebird and he was singing and displaying and telling the ladies how nice he was as a bird. Uh, a couple came up the steps behind me and I could hear them arguing and it, it 
I think it was a domestic violence situation. It was very unpleasant. Um, they didn't know that I'd heard some of the language they'd used and I was really upset. I overtook them and kept walking and I was like, oh, this is really awful. Do I intervene? What can one say or do? And I, I was walking back down the hill and I said to the trees, like, what do I do? Like this, like I didn't want to put this uh, woman in danger by intervening. It's 6.30 on a Sunday morning. I didn't want to put myself danger. So I said to the trees, I'm really upset about this. Like, what do I do? Should I have intervened? And like, I don't know these people. And the trees said to me, you can do nothing if not in relationship with it. You know, that basically being, you have to have a relationship with something in order to have influence. Very wise. The trees. Talk to my trees more often here. Mm. They can impart that sort of wisdom to me. Trees yeah. are pretty good like that. But you have to, I forget to do the listening part. Sometimes I talk to them and I forget to do the listening part. Well, look, on that note, Katrina's been very generous with her time and we've um, had lots of joy listening to, to her. We just want to thank you so much for sharing lots of your composting wisdom and experience with us today. I really appreciate it. And I would encourage, we'll pop in the show notes, the link to your Instagram page because I learn something every week looking at that. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm, I'm never sure what people are finding useful. And lately it's kind of throwing all sorts out and really <laughs> feeling quite vulnerable about the nature communication stuff because as, as you were saying, Jamie, some of these messages can be profound, potentially alter how we operate in society. Like I got a message from bees that, I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> anyway, I will share that another day. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Katrina. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye. Just a note on our very catchy garden hose tunes. We have our original music composed and produced by Martini Toothpick. Martini Toothpick are Dan Zielinski and Mika Coleman. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we reside and recognise their continuing connection to lands, waters and communities and recognise that their wisdom and knowledge has been passed on for thousands of years.